Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to be with you, and uh, we're going to start our class. Let me, uh, first of all, before I pray, there's a set of notes that you need that looks like they usually do, and then there is a pretty full-color chart uh, conveniently printed on cardstock because we have awesome secretaries. And that is for you. Um, I do not, I've looked and looked and looked. I cannot find copyright information on that anywhere. So I'm assuming that uh, it's free for us to distribute like that. So uh, anyway, we'll talk about that in a minute. But let me pray and uh, we'll get started. Uh, Father, we thank you to gather around your word tonight. Thank you for your people. And uh, just with thanksgiving in our hearts and uh, looking forward to uh, this time of year when we remember the coming of Christ, that we would uh, draw near to you in our families and in our church family, uh, that we would seek to love you more and to be more like you in our character, and that you would uh, use the things that we talk about tonight to uh, enhance our ability to understand your word and thus to understand and know you better. And uh, we need your assistance now as we uh, talk about some of the harder books of the Bible, and that you would help us uh, to gain insights that would help us to navigate through these books. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're, uh, we're coming down to the wire. Uh, we're almost to December, and we have just a few more classes. Just a, a little bit of a footnote. Um, there is a chance that we will not meet for the, la- the, the last class that your syllabus notes, that we will not meet for that class. Um, I'd wanted to do two um, lessons on application, but the one that we did earlier in the year, uh, I got through most of the material I wanted to do, so um, I figure we're we're getting close to holidays, and so probably no one's going to complain if we uh, skip the last class, so, but just know that that's coming. But we do have uh, some really exciting times uh, ahead of us, talking about the Psalms, talking about the wisdom books, and tonight we're going to talk about prophecy, as we say it in our family, prophecy. Um. Let's, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Ezekiel. So I want you to imagine that it is, uh, it is that time of year where you are uh, renewing your commitment to Bible reading and Bible reading plans, and your Bible reading plan at some point in the year lands you in a prophetic book. And you crack open the covers of your Bible with fear and trepidation, wondering what difficulties await you in the pages of Scripture as you endeavor to navigate through the murky waters of prophetic literature. And so you come to a book like Ezekiel chapter 1, and uh, you read these words, I looked... And behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it. And in its midst, something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Within it were figures resembling four living beings. And this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like like calves hoof, straight or uh, let's see, uh, and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. At, are you picturing this? As for the faces, 
and the wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. And as for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces and their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. And each went straight forward wherever the spirit was about to go. And they would go without turning as they went. And in the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth amongst the living beings. The fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire. And the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Now, as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth besides the living beings for each of the four of them. The appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling barrel and all the on all four of them had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. And whenever they moved, they moved in any of their four directions without turning as they moved. And as for their rims, they were lofty and awesome. And the rims of all four of them were full of eyes around about them. And whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. And whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. And wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Whenever those went, these went. And whenever those stood still, these stood still. And whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels." What on earth do you do with that? Um, You skip that part, right? Pardon me a second. Yeah, so so that's that's your Bible reading plan, and you come to that, and you're like, man, this this sounds like you know an episode of Star Wars or something like that, right? Or, and uh, okay, great, and um, and I think what Cece. said is probably something that we're all tempted to do and maybe we've all done is we just go this is just too hard i just don't even know what to do with this you know and let's find something that can be i can apply to my life today and we flip to the proverbs where you know all you need is one or two verses uh, to get you a little nugget and uh, and not that that's bad to do but we don't want to miss what a book like this has to say uh, Ezekiel is one of the great prophets. It's one of the longest uh, prophetic books. And it, it has something very important to communicate about God and about his plan. And, and so I want to encourage you, don't, don't skip over the harder books. Uh, we've learned already that um, often application is something that comes after we've done the hard work of what? Of reading and interpretation. And I hope I hope you're on to us now that that part of the reason that we have to learn how to read and interpret scripture is we can't often get to application until we've done that. And and one of our arguments has been if you do the hard work of interpretation, usually the application is pretty obvious to see. So so here's the thing. When you're struggling with application, go back to interpretation. And remember that. Okay, so we're going to talk about 
how we interpret the, the prophets tonight. And I think Ezekiel is a good example of just going, what do we even do with this? And, and, and where do we go with it? And, and what does it mean? And so let's, uh, let's look at some of these things together here. Um, first of all, when we talk about the prophets, actually, before we do that, let, let's just review the interpretive journey as we uh, uh, have done, I think, most of the classes, at least if I'm teaching. This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to get from one town to the other. When we think about uh, biblical interpretation, biblical reading, like a journey from one town to another, separated by a river. And the, the first step, of course, if we're picturing uh, the Bible as it comes to us, is we want to understand what the Bible meant to the original audience, or what our book calls grasping the text in their own town. And that's why we have to do uh, study, and we have to read, and we might have to look at some background information to figure that out. Um, and as a part of that, we're trying to deduce what are some of those differences in culture and language and time and situation between the biblical audience and our situation today. And those differences help us to better understand uh, what, would, what did the author mean to the original audience. Uh, this principalizing bridge, uh, and our book says, what is the theological principle? Uh, I've added the, the main point of the text. It may not be some principle of theology. It may just be the point of the story. Uh, it may be uh, a bit of wisdom. It may be something of the character of God. It may be something about the reality of what God's doing in the world or his promises. But whatever that is in your passage, we want to figure out what is that uh, what, what is the, the truth of the story or the portion of Scripture we're looking at? And then uh, four, remember, is our, our consultation step. We want to make sure uh, that what we've concluded from our reading and interpretation is, in fact, uh, valid as it relates to other parts of Scripture. I had lunch with somebody today, and we were talking about this, and he was saying this was the step that was a bit confusing. It's like, what is this step for? This step is to help you and I to ensure that when we make a conclusion, having studied God's word, that we're not, we didn't miss something or that there isn't something else as revelation unfolds that would keep us from saying something reckless uh, in, in all this. So this is just, this is really a, a check to make sure that our conclusion is consistent with the rest of scripture. Now, just a footnote on this, what we're not trying to do here in looking at other places in Scripture, is to take those other things and put them back into our text. Now that, that's, that, that's something that we don't want to do. What we are doing is just checking our conclusions to make sure that it's consistent with the rest of Scripture. And then finally, if we've done the hard work of interpretation, then we can talk about application. How should we respond uh, to what we've learned? Okay, so that, that's the interpretive journey. So we talk about reading the, the prophets, getting to our material today. Uh, what are the prophetic books? And you've got them in your, uh, on your notes there. If you're not familiar with uh, the prophets, we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Uh, what do we typically call those? What's that? The major prophets. We have the major leagues and the minor leagues, right? The, 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 the big hitters and the rookies. Is that, is that how we do it? No. Why do we call them major prophets? They have yeah, they're longer. Right, they're, they're longer. They're not any less significant, no less God's word. Major ones are the longer books. The minor prophets are the shorter ones. Uh, some as short as one chapter, uh, and others like Zechariah are a lot longer. Uh, but in any case, that, that's what we're talking about. So we're talking about how we interpret that. We notice Lamentations. Uh, where, where, do you, where do you classify Lamentations? I mean, so, some classify it as a prophet. 
a, a prophetic book. Some classify it with the wisdom literature because it's, it's poetic. Um, so Lamentations kind of has its own status. You'll see it put in various lists depending on who you're talking about. So one of the, our, our, our textbook, um, uh, well, excuse me, th- this, this textbook that we have uh, actually says that the prophetic books are some of the hardest books to interpret. And we're going to see tonight why that is. Not impossible. In fact, hopefully by the end of the night, you'll say, hey, that, that this isn't as hard as maybe I thought it was. But like our exercise in Ezekiel, if you just parachute into a prophetic book and start reading, uh, you're going to be lost and disoriented pretty quickly. Okay, so let me show you this handy-dandy little chart. Uh, this is from Max Anders' book, 30 Days Understanding the Bible, which I think is very, very helpful for understanding the big picture. So just look with me at the chart. You've got it in your notes here. But uh, just look briefly at what we're what we're trying to what I'm trying to graph here from this adaption of uh, Max Anders' book here. If we if we divide the Bible up into poetical books, historical books, and prophetic books, and that's another way to organize them, uh, different than what we've talked about before, uh, those historical books are essentially the narrative books. Those are the books that tell the story of the history of the nation of Israel and God's program in the Old Testament. And you'll notice that, um, have, have you noticed that the Bible is not in chronological order? Have you noticed this? And one of the things to recognize about that is that some books are telling the story. Other books are giving us different aspects of the story. And that's what we see with the prophet. With the prophet. So if, just look at this for a minute. So here, here's, our, here's our historical books. And these are telling basically the story of the nation of Israel, starting with creation and then the Exodus and so on and so forth. You'll, you'll recognize here that Exodus and Numbers essentially tell the history of the Exodus generation, the wilderness wandering in Sinai, Leviticus and Deuteronomy overlap because they're giving us more details that fall into the history of Exodus and Numbers. Does that make sense? So if you just read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are not necessarily in chronological order. If you want to read the history, it's Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and then Leviticus and Deuteronomy fit into that portion we know as Exodus and Numbers. Same with Joshua, Judges. Well, where's Ruth? Where does the story of Ruth take place? During the time of the Judges. So see, we put it up here because it's, it's actually happening somewhere within the history of the book of Judges. And likewise, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, which are telling the history of um, uh, the first king of Israel, right? And the, leading up to the division of the kingdom to a northern and southern kingdom all the way through the exile, First and Second Chronicles fall in line, uh, overlapping with the history in Samuel Kings. So again, th- this is sort of putting it in a way that you can see, okay, I can kind of see now the order. So why is this important? When we get to our prophetic books, these prophetic books are designed to give us prophecies that were occurring during different seasons of Israel's history. Does that make sense? So if you want to learn about what was going on historically at the time of Isaiah, the time of Habakkuk, the time of Jeremiah, you would read... Somewhere in Second Kings, and uh, how many of you were with me when I taught through Isaiah a couple of years ago? Do you guys remember that? 
took a little while. We did a lot of looking at Second Kings, didn't we? Because Second Kings is giving us the history surrounding the time when Isaiah was prophesying. And likewise, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, we don't really have much of a historic book right here. Why is that? Yeah, they're in exile, right? So I mean, we, we do have some historical references to that, but really Second Kings ends with the deportation and Ezra is going to begin uh, with the, um, the, the regathering era, right? And then, of course, Esther occurs during that uh, history as well. So the point is you have to think about these, prof- these prophetic books as fitting in with the history of the latter half of the Old Testament. So... Uh, the way we categorize these, and this is very helpful, is Hosea and Amos were written to Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, Habakkuk, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, we, I put in Lamentations there, just I think that was the way Max Anders did it. Those were written to Judah, the southern kingdom. You've got Jonah and Nahum that aren't written to Jews at all. They're written to Gentiles. They're written both to Assyria. Remember, Nahum is Jonah part two, right? Nineveh one, Nineveh two. Uh, the main city of Assyria. And then finally, here's Obadiah, that little book written to the Edomites. And then uh, Ezekiel, Daniel are written during the exile. Haggai and Zechariah are written in the return era. And Malachi written at the latter half of the history recorded by the book of Nehemiah. Does that make sense? So, so when you're reading the prophets, one of the first things you want to do is do what? Yeah, you'd want to, you know, use a resource like this or your study Bible or something to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to read uh, Haggai today. Where on earth are we in the history? Where are we in the story? Right? Remember, we're trying to help you guys keep keep our reading in the big picture of unfolding revelations. And Haggai, okay, well, Haggai is all about uh, the rebuilding of the temple and Zerubbabel and and, and those men that came back from uh, Babylon to uh, rebuild Jerusalem. So when you're reading that, you're going, okay, the exile's already happened, the Persians have taken over, and, and now we've got uh, Cyrus who gives the order uh, for uh, the Jews to return to their land. And uh, so Haggai writes about the rebuilding effort of the temple. What does Nehemiah write about? The, hist- the historical book of Nehemiah, what's that mainly focused on? The rebuilding of the wall. Yeah, Okay. And then uh, Zechariah and Malachi fit in there as prophecies. Of course, Daniel is probably the one we're most um, familiar with in terms of uh, the book that happens during the exile. So, so keep this in mind, and, and at least that way, when, when you come into a prophetic book, you say, okay, I kind of know what's going on historically. I kind of know uh, what's going on in terms of the nation of Israel. Where are they? What's going on? What's happened? And that can help you do that. And again, how, how many of you have that Max Anders, 30 Days of Understanding the Bible? Okay. Uh, it... it 30 days and you understand the Bible, best deal in town. Uh, seriously, I mean, if you've got the time, the chapters aren't that long, there's little exercises at the end, it will really, really help you to get a handle on the big picture there. Okay, so with that in mind, let, let's think about this. The history books versus the prophetic books. In light of that chart I just showed you, the history books reveal more about the prophets, but very little from the prophets. So if you just open the book of Isaiah, you're not going to, other than that real little introduction at the beginning there and then a few things you can glean throughout the book, we don't learn a whole lot about Mr. Isaiah. 
But if you go back and read 2 Kings, you're going to get a lot more insight. And that tends to be true for most of the prophets. On the other hand, the prophetic books reveal reveal more from the prophets, meaning about their teaching, uh, but very little about them, right? So history helps us to understand the prophet, but don't give us much teaching. Prophetic books give more teaching, but don't necessarily give us a whole lot about the prophets. So again, read them in tandem and that will be helpful. Uh, Yeah, so read them together. Okay, so what is prophecy? Uh, Without looking at your notes, you're walking on the Granbury Square. Someone pulls you aside and says, I will not let you continue your day until you define prophecy for me. What's prophecy? Let's get a word from God. Okay, I would I would think that that's what probably what most of us think of when we think of prophecy, right? You know, it, it's most people think it's the predicting of future events, uh, and, and it's true that, that there is prophecy that does that. In the broader sense, though, what what is prophecy itself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's just it's it's it's, it's an oracle from God. It, it's a it's a message from God, and uh, it often does deal with the future. And, but here's the problem: I think a lot of believers read the prophets expecting that most of what they're reading is going to happen in the future relative to our generation. When the reality is most of what you read in the prophets is talking about the future in the immediate generation. In other words, most of the things you're going to read in the prophetic books are going to happen before the time of the New Testament. Now, certainly there are things that come later on down the road, but that's one of those adjustments we just have to make in our minds, which is actually kind of neat because because we live on this side of that history. When we're reading the prophetic books, we also have the history of how God brought about the fulfillment of many of those things. And uh, that's one of the fun things about studying scripture, I think, today. So, okay, so what's prophecy? Prophets were God's spokesmen who proclaimed God's message to the people. And that's really all a prophet was, not necessarily telling the future, although that sometimes is the case. Prophets were primarily, and this is is the language of Fee and Stewart here. In fact, I'm I'm leaning heavily on Fee and Stewart for a lot of material tonight. Um, They call them God's covenant enforcement mediators. Sounds like something out of uh, Lord of the Rings or something like that, right? Uh, So these are the covenant enforcement mediators. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. Prophecy is not primarily about predicting the distant future, but it does often announce the future, but more the near future rather than the distant future. In other words, prophecies that are fulfilled before the close of the Old Testament. Okay, so what do we mean by covenant enforcement mediators? Uh, The the Mosaic Covenant, we talked about this when we talked about the... uh, the purpose of the Old Testament law a couple of weeks ago. Remember, everything about... uh, (laughs) Are you doing that, Drew, or am I doing that? It's flashing. Okay, well, I will carry on. Um... All right, let's switch over here. We'll just use notes. Okay, so what do we mean by covenant enforcement mediators? The the Mosaic Covenant is sort of the controlling covenant uh, at the time that we're thinking about uh, the prophets. Um, Remember, the Abrahamic Covenant was given 
uh, God's uh, way back in Genesis 12 that God is going to call uh, Abram to be the father of a nation. He's going to bless them. He's going to make them numerous. He's going to make their name great. And through Abraham and his family, he's going to bless all the families of the earth. Right. And we, we recognize that. Underneath that covenant is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the, the Mosaic covenant, this, this promise between God and, and the people that would govern how the Israelites would relate to God, particularly as a nation. And uh, one of the things we're going to see is that Mosaic covenant prescribed certain guidelines to Israel for them to follow. And we looked at some of those last time, right? We looked at uh, some of the Ten Commandments. We looked at some of the dietary laws, some of the you know, if your ox falls into a ditch laws, right? Things like that. And God promised then that they were to follow his guidelines, that there would be certain blessings that would follow. And likewise, if they disobeyed, there would be negative consequences, or sometimes those are called curses. When you hear curses, don't think witchcraft and sorcery, okay? When you hear curses, it, in the biblical sense, it means negative consequences. And uh, so let's just Let's just take a moment and see some of these. This is why we don't understand the prophets, because we we didn't start at the beginning of our Bible. You start at the beginning of your Bible and read the story, and you're understanding that this is the covenant that's governing uh, the nation of Israel. When you get to the prophets, the prophets aren't saying anything that hasn't already been said already way back in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as well as all throughout the the history books. The prophets, all they're doing is they're reiterating what God told them at Sinai and in that season and saying, hey, if if you don't do this, here's the consequence. And that's why we call them the covenant reinforcement mediators. They're just pointing backward to the covenant, saying to the people, hey, if you don't shape up, those negative consequences that God promised to bring are going to come about. So let's just look at some of those, because I know these are probably fuzzy in your mind. So turn with me back to the book of Leviticus. And I just want you to get a flavor of uh, how some of these things work. And that will help us then to better understand what's going on in the prophets. Okay, so Leviticus, we we just saw in the chart a moment ago that Leviticus is a an expansion on the history that we're learning in Exodus and in, um, ex- in um, yeah, Exodus and Leviticus, right? And Numbers and Deuteronomy kind of fit within that realm. So in the context of the Mosaic Covenant, God says this in chapter 26, verse 1 of Leviticus. You shall not make for yourselves idols, you shall, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Now, here's the promise, okay? Verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then, verse 4, I shall bless you. Now, listen to some of the blessings. Verse 4, I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce. Trees will bear fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until your grape gathering, and your grape gathering will last until sowing time, meaning you'll always have enough food. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from your land, and no sword will pass through your land. Uh, But you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword, and and on and on and on. So what was he saying is, you do what I'm telling you to do, what's going to happen? You're going to prosper. 
And um, it, it's interesting, um, uh, Fee and Stewart kind of categorize all this in the blessings. They say basically the blessings of the covenant come down to life, health, prosperity, agricultural abundance, respect, and safety. And then conversely, if they were to disobey, and uh, Fee and Stewart alliterated this list, I thought this was interesting, if you don't do what God tells you to do, you're going to get death, disease, drought, dearth, danger, destruction, defeat, deportation, destitution, and disgrace. Obviously written by a preacher, right? Uh, so, and we get down to verse 14, chapter 26, down to verse 14. If you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commands, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. And also you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you, so that you will be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. And if also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will also uh, break down your pride of power. I will make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent uselessly. Your land will not yield its produce and the trees of the land will not yield their, fr- their fruit. And, and he goes on from there and, and it gets even more and more severe. So the point is, these are the blessings and curses of the covenant. And these are in force through the time of the, pro- of the prophets. So all the prophets are doing is they're shining a spotlight back to these texts earlier in the Bible saying, guys, these are still in force. And if you don't obey, those consequences are going to happen. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, where is it? Ah, let me look for it here. I didn't write it down. I think it's in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Uh, let's see, 4.15. Yeah, l- look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Just turn the page to the right a few to, to Deuteronomy. Now remember, Deuteronomy is Moses' last sermon. And it's interesting how much, believe it or not, how much prophecy he actually gives in terms of telling the people what will happen in the future if they obey and if they don't obey. Uh, Look with me at chapter 4, verse 25, because this little section actually predicts and reveals the cycle that's going to happen in the prophets. This is amazing. This is uh, way, way before uh, any of these things happen in the prophets. Look at this. Chapter 4, verse 25 of Deuteronomy. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God and so provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long you shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples. You will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, meaning false gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor uh, eat nor smell. 
But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and your soul. And when you were in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is compassionate, and he will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to you. It's interesting. That, that's a prediction of exactly what's going to happen during the time of the prophets. They're going to forget God. They're going to disobey. They're going to be annihilated. They're going to be dragged off into a foreign land. And then they're going to come to their senses and repent, and God will again restore them back to their land. So anyways, there's other passages there that, that demonstrate what's going on in terms of the blessings and the cursings. But, but that's the cycle. So when you read the prophets, look for that. Look for the promise of blessings. Look for the promise of cursings. Uh, look for this cycle, uh, as Fee and Stewart pointed out, an identification of Israel's sin or sometimes of God's love for Israel if he's offering blessing for what they're doing and then a prediction of curse or blessing depending on the circumstance. And you'll see that repeated over and over and over. Okay, questions on that? Okay. Yeah, because and and by, and by yeah and by remembering the covenant, that that's not saying like God forgot about it. Of course, what it's saying is God will bless you in line with the covenant that He made if you will repent and turn from your ways. So it's not yeah, a thing. correct. It's not a permanent. It, the, the the negative consequence is not a permanent thing. If you repent, then God will bring restoration and blessing, which is which is what happens. In, uh, in the return, not in an ultimate sense, um, but at least in terms of them being able to go back to the land and, and rebuild the temple and the wall. So yeah, it is significant. Other questions on that? Okay, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because this is probably the thing that we're most familiar with in the prophecies. Some prophecies are about the Messiah, and um, the one we're probably most familiar with is Isaiah 53, but I mean, there, there's, there's others uh, scattered throughout the prophets. But actually, and this is what we have to be careful about, the, the, we talk about how often the Old Testament talks about this coming Messiah, the, the seed of the woman promised way back in Genesis, and that's true. But most of the prophecies, most of the prophetic material are not about the Messiah. It's there, and that's the culmination, right? That's where we're going. But we want to move away from a way of reading Scripture that's looking for Jesus under every rock and behind every fence and behind every tree of the prophetic literature because that, that's not what the author intends most of the time. Uh, so, I mean, it's Christmas time. We're going to read Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and, and Micah 5, 2, and we're going to read Isaiah 53 and all those sorts of things, and we should. Um, but just remember, some of the prophecies are about the Messiah, but the bulk of them are not directly about him. You know, they might be leading up to him, they might be preparing the way for him, but aren't directly about him. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Um, now, from that, let's talk then about some interpretive helps, and then this is where uh, you're going to help me. You're going to do some, we're going to do a little bit of uh, interaction here. This is going to be fun. So you've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Okay. Um, 10 tables, and there's 12 minor prophets. How convenient. Um, 
11 and 12 if you include Drew and myself. So Drew's working back there, so we won't do that. Okay, so, so the, the best advice I can give you, and then this is what Fee and Stewart say and, and, and uh, uh, Duvall and Hayes. By the way, I was at a meeting a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I'm, I'm walking up a stairway, and Scott Duvall is coming down the stairway. So I'd never met him before, and he was engaged in conversation, but uh, I thought it was funny that it's like, hey, there's, our, there's our, the author of our textbook there. Um, okay, so the best thing I can tell you is before you jump into the murky waters of prophetic literature, get some background help. Um, that chart would be a great place to start. Um, how, many, how many of you have a study Bible? Probably most of you. Read the introduction to your study Bible. That's going to, yeah. Is that painful, Anson? Yeah, okay, it actually will help you, so... So, so do that, okay? So let's, let's talk about a, an example of how we do that, okay? So let's say we're studying the book of Isaiah. Now, this is not in your notes because I want you to just pay attention up here. I'm going to take you through the exercise, not, not by reading notes that you have, but just by walking you through. When I was preparing to teach the book of Isaiah, one of the first things I did was I wanted to read it over and over and over. Now, Isaiah is a big book. And it's not in chronological order. And often, uh, as your textbook says, often the oracles or the, the, um, the sections of prophecy, the sections of the message from God that the prophet's giving, they're just strung one after another. And, and you're going, did we just change subjects? I think we just changed subjects. I'm not sure we changed. So you've you got to figure all that out. And in some cases, the English Bible translators have tried to give you a guess by putting little headings where they think there's a break, but sometimes they're wrong and sometimes they miss things. So, so I'm reading Isaiah, but one of, one of the things I did to try to get my brain around Isaiah was I went back to my good old go-to 30 days to understanding the Bible, which has this, they call it the, the arc of biblical history. And we, we talked about this in our very first class. And I said, okay, so where is Isaiah in the arc of biblical history? Where does it fit in the overall message of Scripture? And the answer is it fits right there in 6 and 7, in the kingdom era and the exile era. So I'm like, okay, so Isaiah is happening. What's going on in the, t- talk to me here, what's going on in the kingdom era? It's near the end of the kings of Israel. Okay, that's right. Yeah, and, I mean, the kingdom era would include all the kings of Israel, but Isaiah, you're right, is going to happen kind of toward the latter half of that. That's right. What else do you know about the, the kingdom era? We start off with one king over one nation, and by the time we're done with the kingdom era, what do we have? Two kings over a divided nation, right? Two, two nations, or, or a northern and a southern. So that, that's good history, because Isaiah is going to spend part of his time, well, he's talking to Judah, the southern kingdom, but w- what's a significant event that happens in Israel's history during Isaiah's ministry? Do you remember? That's right. Yeah, the the Assyrians uh, come in and destroy Samaria, the northern kingdom, and take all those folks back to the Assyrian Empire. Well, that's kind of significant, right? Do you think if you were the nation of Judah, you'd be trembling a little bit? Now, remember, the nation of Judah is like, um, I remember right, it's, it's the, think of east side of Dallas, get this right, east side of Dallas to Benbrook, to Burleson, to Denton, I think. I think that's about the size. Let's let's say it's roughly the size of the the Metroplex, okay? What's the Assyrian Empire in Isaiah's day? 
all of the rest of Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Louisiana, and Arkansas. That's the Assyrian Empire. And the little DFW area is the only thing they don't control. (laughs) Do you think you'd be a little nervous? And that's why when we read Isaiah, we're going, what's wrong with these Israelites? Why do they keep turning to these foreign nations for protection? Why why are they siding with the enemy? Why are they negotiating with the Assyrians? Because they're scared. And you know, have you noticed that you and I don't make really good decisions when we're scared? And that's what's going on there. So, So this history helps us to put ourselves in the sandal, the sandals of, of the 6th century people that are going on here and try to get our bearing a little bit. So that's the first thing I did. Remember, the, um, th- this is from Max Anders' book, so you can read it there basically. We have the United Kingdom, right? Then we have the Divided Kingdom that happens shortly after Solomon's death so that uh, there's a Northern Kingdom, a Southern Kingdom. Uh, one is ruled by a guy named Jeroboam. One is ruled by another guy named Rehoboam. And uh, then the Northern Kingdom is judged... We read about that in 2 Kings. And then finally, the southern kingdom of Judah is judged, taken back into Babylon. So that gives us some context. What dates are we talking about? We're talking about, you know, 1100 B.C. down to 723 B.C. is about the time of that kingdom era because the exile starts in 720, 722, somewhere in that range with the Assyrian Assyrian exile. What Bible books are covered? All those books are happening in the historical time of the kings. See, that's a lot, of, that's a lot going on there. Um, and then uh, Max Anders gives a theme for the kingdom era, so that just kind of helps you to just have a real basic understanding of what's going on there. Okay, then the next thing I found, this was a gold mine. Let me go grab a copy here. This is cool, man. Uh, and this is, this, this is free, guys. This is free as part of your admission tonight. Because I love you. And Lacey was kind enough to print it to us in color. Now check this out. This is like the... It almost looks like like uh, what, the, what the, um, the head coaches of football teams are holding on the sideline, right? When they're calling plays. It's got all colors and junk all over it. But check this out. It's, see if you can get oriented here, okay? The very, very top, the black dotted line is the timeline. And notice that this chart comes in two sections, right? So you start in the upper left-hand corner, you go over here, and then we run out of room, so we resume it here. So if you really want to take advantage of this, what you need to do is get out your scissors, right? And you just cut this baby in half and then tape it to one big long chart, right? So you can do that on your own time afterward. What's that? Oh, that's true, yeah, yeah, well... The, the, our printer doesn't print, I guess, like that. But okay, so you get the idea. So you got the timeline. Now the red names up there. What are what are the red names representing? Yeah, these are the foreign kings, right? The kings of Assyria. You see them up there. And then later on, we're going to get uh, you get the kings of Damascus. That's another foreign nation. The Babylonian Empire. The Median kings. You say, well, why are because you have all these different nations and power changes that happen. Now, within that, then you've got the yellow and the green. The yellow represents the northern kingdom of Israel, the capital city of Samaria. The green represents the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, capital city of Jerusalem. And the names within the yellow band, those are the the kings of Israel. 
and the, king, or the, the names within the green are the kings of Judah. Okay, is this making sense? Are you with me? Okay. Now, those things that look like flags between the yellow and the green, those are, what are those? Those are prophets. And the ones that have colored flags are what? Those are the prophets that have books represented in the Bible. Now notice, look at all the prophets that didn't get any books. Elijah, are you kidding me? Elijah has this incredible ministry, no prophetic books. But we learn an awful lot about him in the historic books, don't we? Um, Now the colored flags there, those are guys that get books. Okay, so we start with Jonah, right? Look at that, there's Jonah and uh, Amos and Hosea. Now notice the width of the flag represents the longevity of the book, right? So Jonah, his book happens in a relatively small portion of history, right? Hosea has a much longer span in terms of his book. And I think that I don't think that's the lifespan of the prophet. I think it's the length of history that the book covers. Um, but that just kind of shows you, okay, so when... Okay, let, let's do a test. Let's see if you're tracking with me, okay? So when... Uh, when Jonah starts his ministry, who's the king of Israel? And who's the king of Judah? Amaziah. Okay. And uh, by the time Jonah ends his ministry, who's the king of Israel? Okay. And who's the king of Judah? Uzziah. Okay. You see how that works? Isn't that handy? And it's free. Yes. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it is the years of their reign. Yeah. Well, remember some of these guys became king when they were like eight years old and things like that. So it, it could be some overlap there. That'd be interesting to go back and look and see what that overlap represents. Yeah. Yeah, that could be. That could be. Yeah. Yeah, we'll go back and look at that. That's a good point. I hadn't noticed that before. But uh, okay, so in any case, you get the idea of how it works, right? So that can help you then to determine, because you you know, it's it's like watching a movie, and you got to keep track of the geography, the history, who's in power, who's writing, who's speaking, who are the main characters. And I don't know about you, I get lost in stuff like. Some of you are gifted with all that. I'm not gifted in that, so I am gifted in charts because I'm a former recovering engineer. So I like I like charts here. So this is good. So I studied this and studied this and studied this. So talk about Isaiah. Well, where's Isaiah? Isaiah's ministry starts during the reign of Uzziah and then Jotham and then Ahaz and Hezekiah, which is exactly what chapter 1, verse 1 of Isaiah says. The book tells us that. And then you can see midway through Isaiah's ministry, what happens to the northern kingdom? It goes back into... They go into captivity with the Assyrians. So, so something like this can help you. So th- this was really helpful. And then you know, if you zoom in uh, so you don't have to fail the eye exam there, um, you can see more clearly where Isaiah's ministry starts there. Okay, So that's good. 
And uh, so now I'm thinking, okay, so what's the, uh, the book of Isaiah about? And I wrote this just kind of thinking about the history that I was studying. It's a record of the prophet Isaiah's ministry to Judah, the southern kingdom, warning them of a future judgment if they do not repent, but promising them a future hope and a kingdom that will come when the servant is revealed. And Isaiah, as you know, has these what are called servant songs that are part of the redemptive theme of the book, pointing to a day when uh, this servant will come to set up his kingdom and bring a, a future hope to Israel. Um, okay, so then you got, okay, we looked at this on the chart. At, during the time of Isaiah, you got four Assyrian rulers. You've got uh, seven kings of Israel. You've got five kings of Judah. Those are all on the chart, so if you want to write those down, you got them on the chart. But uh, And the dates, again, a study Bible can give you the dates so that you're like, okay, I kind of got the history here. And then you recognize this chart, and you think, where's Isaiah? Well, Isaiah's happening somewhere in the middle of 2 Kings, uh, leading toward uh, the latter end. Now, Isaiah, you know why Isaiah's confusing? Because at some point in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah starts talking about the time when Judah is in exile and they're anticipating their return. And you're going, wait a minute, that didn't happen in Isaiah's lifetime. And you're going to be really, really, really confused if you don't know that before you start reading. That that was a prophecy he was giving, looking forward to this future time that uh, the captive uh, Jews in Babylon would look forward to their restoration. Okay, so my, my, my point is the first thing you have to do, the best thing you can do to help yourself reading the prophetic books is read some background. That background gives you context to make sense of what you're reading. The second best thing you can do, or, or maybe, maybe this is always the best thing to do, is just read and read and read. The, the, the problem with reading a book like Isaiah over and over and over again, it's not like reading a story. That works really well for stories because it's a story. If you're reading a prophetic book over and over and over again, it's not in chronological order typically, you're going to be really lost in the symbology and and, in the history if you don't know what's going on. So you really need to read the book as you're learning the history and as you're learning the background. Then reading the book will make a lot more sense. Okay. Number two, a second thing you can do to help yourself, try to break the book up into oracles or these are those speeches that the prophets give uh, from God to their audience. Often a book is comprised of various oracles tied together without any transition and in no particular order. Let me show you this in the book of Amos. Okay, so turn with me to Amos, and some of you are going, Amos, that's not in the Bible. You're making that up. Actually, there's a book called Amos. And uh, we'll come back to Amos 5 in a moment because uh, there's, some, there's some interesting things going on here. But one of the things you have to figure out is, so, so just, just look at your Bible here for a minute and, and tell me, does your Bible break up chapter 5 at all? Uh, any headings, anything like that? Yeah, there, there's, you know, it, it's, it's poetic, which is why it's sometimes English Bible editors will indent poetic books to try to preserve something of the poetic structure there. Uh, so that's why you see little sections like that. But um, yeah, you, you, my Bible, they, they've, they've spaced some things, like there's a break between chapter th- uh, verse 3 and 4, there's a break between 7 and 8, 
a break between 9 and 10, a break between 13 and 14, a break between 15 and 16, and again between 17 and 18, 20 and 21. Is that what, does your Bible do that too? Yeah. Okay. So what is that? That's the English Bible Committee's effort to try to break this up into some sort of logical uh, units. But it's at best an educated guess. And uh, I think David talked about this, um, talking about narrative. Very often the chapter markers are convenient for finding things in the Bible, but they're put in places that break up the continuity of the story. And then you think, okay, the story ends at chapter 3 when the reality it's been going on for several chapters. So, so don't always believe those, uh, those chapter titles. When, when you read the text and you try, you're just trying to say, where does one prophecy end and the next one begin? Where does one oracle end and the next one begin? Uh, you end up with something like the outline you see represented there. And again, th- this is you know, this is subject to debate too. But what you're trying to do is break up uh, what you're reading into into logical sections of different oracles or speeches that the prophet makes. And uh, so you can you can look at what Fee and Stewart say about that and uh, agree or disagree with him. Um, but let's let's uh, let's do an example of this, okay? That that's Fee and Stewart's example. You've got a lament oracle, an invitation to blessing or punishment, and then a warning if they were to continue in disobedience. Let, let's look, um, in just in terms of trying to break up uh, a book into series of oracles or series of speeches, let's look at the book of Nahum for a moment. It's a short example, and uh, let's, let's do this together, okay? So your mission, should you choose to accept it, I'll give you a couple of minutes, just read over the you don't have time to read the whole book but just you know skim over the book and i want you to look for the breaks that represent different oracles and i'll tell you right now there are hints in the text to help you okay so ready set go look at nahum where are the major breaks in the text
may take another minute. And again, we're not we're not trying to get. Uh, we're just practicing here, okay? So don't be afraid to take a stab at it. But just look for breaks in the speeches, the the speeches of Nahum from God to the nation of Assyria to the Ninevites. Where where do those speech breaks look like they occur? Okay, let's let's take a shot at this. Look at chapter 1 verse 1. Who's the prophet represented in the book of Nahum? Not a trick question. It's Nahum, that's right. Okay, and, and who's Nahum? He's the Elkishite, right? Who's he? Well, the, the oracle, the, the speech, the prophetic speech he's going to give from God. Who's the recipient? The Ninevites. And remember, uh, Nahum is Jonah part two. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, Nahum launches into this oracle in chapter 1, verse 2, talking about the character of God being avenging and wrathful and taking vengeance, and right? So where does it seem like that first oracle ends? What do you think? Verse 12. Okay, Zip, why do you say 12? Okay, what do you think about that? Why, why might that be a break or at least some sort of pause, do you think? Exactly. Exactly. That's right. So this is direct speech from God, right? Exactly. So, so maybe that's part of the original speech, but it, it definitely represents something different in the oracle, doesn't it? Okay, so, so Zippy, I agree with you there. Good, good job. Okay, where, where might the next break be? He talks in, in verse, starting in verse 12, he talks about what God himself says. Where does that conclude? Yeah, it, it concludes in 13, and then chap, and starting in 14... It goes back to the third person, doesn't it? The Lord has issued a command, meaning, now this is Nahum talking about God now, right? God himself was talking in 12 to 13. Now 14 is God talking about, or Nahum talking about God. What happens in 15? Who's Nahum talking to in chapter 1, verse 15? You see the difference between the message in 15 and the message in the previous, the rest of the chapter? Now, think about what's going on. Assyria controls this land, the, 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 whole, the whole land, right? Judah, at this time, is the last man standing. So if God gives a prophecy to Nineveh saying, I'm going to destroy you, 
What do you think Judah's going to think about that? Yay! <laughs> because the destruction of Assyria means what for Judah? Yeah. That, that's their enemy. Their enemy's destroyed. So, so here's the thing. What Nahum is doing is Nahum is announcing judgment on the Ninevites, but it serves as an encouragement to the nation of Judah, doesn't it? Behold on the mountains the feet of those who bring good news. Okay. Where do you want to go from there? Okay, he goes back to talking to the Ninevites in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh-huh. Right. Until when? So, so what do you notice? In chapter 1, we had Nahum talking about what God is doing, who he is and what he's going to do. And then God speaks. And now in chapter 2, verse 1, he's talking about who God is and what he's going to do. And then what happens in chapter 2, verse 13? God speaks. Okay, you see that? So when you're, when you're trying to get something of the organization of the book, you're noticing, hey, there's a, there's a little bit of a pattern there. So those would be logical places to divide up the oracle. And again, you know, it, it's, not, it's not like you fail utterly and you get an F in your Bible reading that day if you don't break it up in the proper oracles. This is just simply something you can do to better understand what the book is teaching. And what, hap- what happens in chapter 3, verse 1? Goes back to talking to the Ninevites. Do you see the elevation of the emotion? And we're not really talking about this, but I, I can't help but point it out. Woe to the bloody city. Man, that's a way to start an oracle. Um, and and as you, if you're familiar with this, it's graphic. It's, it's um, right? And then what happens in chapter 3, verse 5? God speaks, doesn't he? So you see that pattern? Uh, and then it continues on uh, through the rest of the book, and it ends. Um, and you want to talk about a, a, a morbid, scary ending. This is how God ends his book to the Ninevites. There is no relief from your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? Because the Assyrians were absolutely ruthless to every enemy that they came across. And God says, um, you're going down. And there's no hope for you. So it's very sobering. I should know the answer to that. Um, it was at least one generation. I can't remember how many years it is. It's not long. It's not long. What's that? Was it, was it that short? I was thinking a little bit longer than that. But well, we can go, well, look, Let's look at our chart. Yeah, so Nahum is, what, 645-ish? And Jonah is 7, what, 775, should we say? Yeah, so it's a little bit longer than that, but, but, not, but not long. 
Um, okay. Okay, so, so again, one thing you can do when reading these and, and use your study Bible to help you is to try to divide the book up into oracles and that will help you to navigate. That, I, I spent hours and hours and hours in Isaiah doing that because Isaiah just changes subjects and you go, you ever, you ever been driving in an unfamiliar place and like three miles past, you go, oh, I should have turned back there. And that's what you feel like in Isaiah. You know, you're reading, you're reading, you're reading, and, you're, and you, you get two, three pages, and you're like, I was supposed to turn back there, right? I'm to- we're totally on a different subject here. So um, that will help you in terms of outlining the book. Number three, third interpretive health. Recognize the different forms of prophecy. And again, Fee and Stewart help us here. There's a lawsuit format. There's a woe format and a promise format. We just saw the woe format, didn't we, in Nahum? That chapter 3 is a woe prophecy. Uh, uh, Not like woe, like woe, but woe like judgment's coming, woe. Um, Let me show you the lawsuit prophecy. I remember in going through Isaiah, um, this was really interesting. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 3. Well, Fee and Stewart are not, they're not limiting that to those three. They're saying these are three of the major forms. Um. And as you read more about prophecy, you realize that uh, the prophets are often employing, you know, techniques or or styles that were popular in their day in some cases. But but look at this. So so here here's what the lawsuit form does: is it basically says the prophet comes and presents his message as a hypothetical court scene, and. Uh, Actually, Isaiah does this a number of times. But look at Isaiah chapter 3. I think this is the first one. Verse 13. So um, if if we're reading Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1 starts off basically saying, God says this, I hate every religious thing you do because your heart is far from me. That's essentially what he says in graphic terms in chapter 1. And so then the court is set up in chapter 3, verse 13. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. Here's what he says. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor? So what is the first charge brought against the people of Israel in the courtroom of God? Corrupt leadership that does what? Exploits the poor. We'll talk about this in a minute. One of, one of the values of the prophets, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is we learn something of the moral law of God. That is, what does God think about what is right and what is wrong? And one of the things you see in the prophets over and over and over again is when people who are supposed to be God's people are taking advantage of the weak and the poor and the destitute and the widow and the orphan. And uh, this, was, this was one of the horrible things that were going on uh, in the nation of Israel. So you see that courtroom uh, form of prophecy. Um, we looked at the woe, the promise. Uh, we'll see it in Amos here in a minute. But where, where that's where God's saying, hey, remember my promises. Remember there's hope. Isaiah does this. He's like, judgment, judgment, judgment. But remember, there's hope if you repent, that God will be faithful to his covenant. 
The, the next thing we have to do is polish up our poetry skills. And I confess that uh, poetry was not my strength in school. Um, so this is not exhaustive, but just reminding when we read the poetic books of Scripture, we'll talk more about this next week in the Psalms and in uh, the wisdom literature. But um, parallelism is probably the most common feature of Hebrew poetry, biblical poetry. Uh, parallelism, you guys okay with that? Parallelism is where we're going to say two things back to back. And sometimes those two things are designed to say the same thing to make the point or to say opposite things to show contrast or to say uh, to say something and then expand on it all the more so you're sure to understand. And so that's what we have here in the three examples, right? Synonymous parallelism, which we're saying the same thing two different ways. Uh, Isaiah 44, I have swept our offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. He's saying the same thing in terms of um, how God is handling the sins of the people there. So that's saying the same thing two different ways. Of course, you'll see this in the book of Proverbs uh, a lot as well. Antithetical parallelism, meaning we're going we're gonna to make a contrast. We're going to say opposite things. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail upon their beds. Uh, I know that's you don't have the context, but take a stab at what Hosea is saying or God is saying through Hosea to the people. Okay, they're complaining but not talking to me. They're upset about what's going on, but they're not they're not coming to God. They're not repentant about it. So, and and inter- interesting. This is interesting just uh when I do biblical counseling or just as we interact with one another, um don't ever confuse crying and wailing and sorrow with repentance. Right? Repentance may include crying and wailing and sorrow, but crying and wailing and sorrow does not equal repentance. And that's exactly the point that Hosea is making here. And God's making through Isaiah or Hosea. And then synthetic parallelism. This is where we're going to we're going to build um, additional information on what was said. So deliverers will go up from Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord. See how he's adding additional information Right? Deliverers will come from Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau. Okay, that's the point. And then he adds, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. That's Obadiah 21. So just be looking for those features uh, of poetry there. Um, we, we talked about this as well. Distinguishing prophecy that is near-term, a near-term prediction from prophecy that is a far-term prediction. So for example, we, we won't, for sake of time, we won't look at this one right now, but it's one you're familiar with. In Ezekiel 25 to 39, there's this big long oracle about what's going to happen and it's going to happen in the near future, right? Like, like before the Old Testament closes. But in the middle of that, in chapter 35 and 36, you, you, sh- you should know that just by saying Ezekiel 35, 36, what does Ezekiel 35 and 36 talk about? The new covenant. And when do all of the wonderful promises of the new covenant happen? In the New Testament, yeah, after Messiah and ultimately in the restoration of Israel, uh, you know, in the future. That's future even from our day and age today. 
So when you're reading Ezekiel, and Isaiah used to bug me with this. I used to argue with Isaiah. It's like, dude, put a period and tell me you're going to go to... When, when he's talking about something near term, and then before you know it, he's talking about something... It, it's like, and you remember this analogy in Isaiah, it's like he's got a camera. And most of the time, the lens on the camera is a, is a short lens, and he's looking like at the chair there, Right? And then, without telling us the readers, he'll switch to his long lens, and now he's looking way, way out in the future. It's like, tell me you're changing lenses, man. At least give me something there. But when you're reading Isaiah and the prophets, they don't always tell you when they're flipping lenses on you. So be looking for that, and uh, you say, what's going to help you with that? Context is going to help you with that. Context, context, context. And then lastly here, recognize that the New Testament sometimes cites prophetic passages in ways that seem unique. Now, I'm going to say something that might be a bit controversial because I know you've heard otherwise, but this is what I think is true. A closer investigation of, of how the New Testament authors use the Old Testament, I think yields that they are honoring the intent of the Old Testament writers. I don't think that when Matthew quotes Hosea or John quotes Isaiah or, or Paul quotes Moses, I don't think they are violating the authorial intent of those Old Testament authors in how they're using that passage in the New Testament. I think that's a misnomer. And I think the reason so many believers think that and even very prominent books talk about that including one of our textbooks, um, is that they're not really taking the Old Testament authors as seriously as they need to, first of all, and they're not looking carefully at how the New Testament author is viewing the Old Testament author. I think a lot... I'm on a soapbox here, but just hear me out, okay? I think what happens is we think, oh, Paul's writing the New Testament, that's better than the Old Testament, so he, he, that takes pri- priority over what the Old Testament is saying. That's not at all what happens. The New Testament writers took the Old Testament seriously. They believed it was God's word. They believed in these principles of authorial intent that we're talking about. And I think if we study them carefully, we see that they're actually honoring the intent of the Old Testament author. They're not using the Old Testament in some unique, novel way that's different than what you or I would have read reading our Old Testament. Okay? So, there. End of rant. But um, that's not the popular view. Uh, If you're interested in that, um, there's some actually some really good resources that are available. Um, but I, I just would, would would you think that God would intend us to read our Bibles, you know, the normal way that we've been learning in this class? But the apostles were somehow allowed to use the Old Testament in a novel and what appears to be, in some authors' case, reckless way. I just I just don't I just don't see the consistency of that. So anyway, uh, people much smarter than me disagree with that. So um, that that's great. But yeah. And that's and that would be one way of recognizing it is what what we're what we're really talking about right here is when the New Testament writer says 
And the word in the Old Testament was fulfilled, right? So that's mainly what we're talking about. But you're right. Sometimes the New Testament authors are using Old Testament verses by analogy or by illustration or by application. Yeah. I'm saying that's consistent with what the intent of Joel was in the original passage. So, and that, that may, you may say, okay, sounds good to me. It it, it may not sound controversial because uh, you may not be aware of, you know, what scholars teach and what some of the debates are in in seminaries and things like that. But, but the point is, I think, I think for being consistent, we we have, we have to land there. And um, so anyway, so just know that I, I, the, the New Testament authors are not using the Old Testament in a way that violates the intent of the Old Testament author. Okay, so let's do this. Um, uh, there's never enough time. Um, well, let's do this. J- just write these down, okay? And then we're going to do a little exercise. Um when we, when we need application help, you've seen these before. Pastor Terry talked about something very similar in the epistles. I talked about something very similar in the, uh, the law um, and uh, some of the other, the other genres that we've looked at. Um, when, we're, when we're interpreting a, a prophetic book, our main goal is to understand what, what's the oracle, right? What's the message from God through the prophet to the people? And as we're looking at that message, we recognize that it's almost always connected to the covenant, right? And so we recognize like, like the law portions of the Old Testament, they're not written to us directly, right? The prophets are not written to us directly, but they are written for our benefit, meaning we can learn things by studying them. And some of the things that we're going to learn are the timeless things that, that are not locked into necessarily um, you know, that actual original audience, but things that transcend uh, the original audience. Things like, what does the passage teach about the character of God? You, you know what just struck me in Isaiah over and over and over and over again? God is serious about violating his law. God is holy. He, he takes his commands, his character incredibly seriously and there are um, unspeakable penalties for violating the holiness of God and and you'll just your jaw will just drop looking at the degree of severity that happens when people violate the law of God and just about the time you're catching your breath from that you're overwhelmed by God's patience it's like he's going to give these poor, sorry Israelites one more chance. And, you know, this is going to happen. This is going to, this is going to happen. And it's going to be bad and horrible. But if you'll repent, I'll be merciful and gracious and I'll remember my covenant and I'll, right? And so you, you, you have what Paul says is both the kindness and severity of God. And the whole book of Isaiah is about that. Um, and again, you, you, you cannot read Isaiah and not be struck with how merciful and gracious our God is. And you see it in, in, uh, in years of history uh, amongst a very stubborn people. What does the passage teach about human nature? So let me give you, let me give you some, uh, for, for passage about the character of God, write down Nahum chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1 is so much about the character of God. I've mentioned Isaiah. 
for um, for human nature. What does the passage teach about human nature? Write down Micah chapter one to three. Um, and by the way, I've preached Nahum, I've preached Habakkuk, I have preached um, Isaiah, uh, I have preached. Let's see here. I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget. Uh, Isaiah, Lamentations, Jonah, Haggai, Lamentations, Habakkuk, and Micah. So if you want a little bit of help on understanding those books, you can dig up those sermons. Don Dietrich did a whole Sunday school class on all 12 of the minor prophets. So definitely go get those recordings. They're all online if you need some help with all of this. But uh, So these are just some takeaways from the times where I've preached through different passages. Nahum chapter 1, the character of God. Micah chapter 1 to 3, human nature. Habakkuk chapter 1, the questions that we have when we don't know what God's doing in the world. It's like, what are you doing? This doesn't make sense. And, you know, you and I feel like that at times. And Habakkuk demonstrates that, that aspect of human nature and often what God is doing. Amos chapter 5 talks about injustices. <clears throat> And as I mentioned, the book of Isaiah is full of redemptive themes. So again, all four of those can be really helpful when you're reading the prophets. Look for those four features in all of that. Okay, ready for the lightning round? You have five minutes. Roger, you have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Haggai. Five minutes, use your study Bible or your phone, go to Bible Hub, and I want you to give me as much of the background of those books as you can. Now, don't, don't forget, I have helped you by supplying you with the chart, so you can use that too. Okay, so let's just... Very quickly, I want to show you how easy this is to do if you have a study Bible. Just read that article, give me something of the history, the context, the time, what's going on. Ready, set, go. Yeah, you can work with your partner there at your table if you want to. 
if you have a partner. Okay, one more minute before you will do your oral presentation to the class. Okay, so here, here's, here's the lightning round rules. I want you to tell us the name of your book and brief, br briefly who the prophecy is for and just a little bit of the history of what's going on. You got about 30 seconds, okay? So don't feel like this has to be a, a long speech, okay? So let's just kind of get a flavor of this, okay? Roger, what'd you come up with for uh, Hosea? Okay, very good. Very good. You see, you see what you can do in just a few minutes? Excellent job. Uh, students, young, young theologians, you got Hosea, what'd you have? Joel, okay. Tell us about Joel. Just a, I appreciate you saying that. Just a footnote on that. You're going to read that, especially if you're using some of those online sources, because remember Bible Hub, you're going to have a mixed bag of sources. Uh, there is a plethora of literature that will late date the prophets. Do you know why they do that? Because they, they want to disprove Yeah, they don't believe that God can actually give prophecy, which is why you have late dates given. So the earlier dates that you're seeing... Uh, are the traditional dates and, and usually in line with the history, assuming that God can actually tell the future, which he can. So 
So good job, guys. Gentlemen. Excellent. Really good. See what you guys can do in just a few minutes of reading. So take a few minutes of reading before you dive in, and that's going to give you uh, some navigational help, okay? Uh, What did you guys have? Okay, very good. And uh, so good job. And you guys had Obadiah, is that right? Okay, very good. Excellent, good job. Uh, Jonah, Micah, right? You guys had Micah? Who's representing your table? Yeah. Um, let's see, the message was uh, judgment against evil people. Mm-hmm. Uh, 722 BC, um, and the direction was uh, especially to the southern kingdom uh, where Judah and Israel rivaled uh, David and Solomon. Mm-hmm. That's right. Very good. Very, very good. Okay, so Micah. Nahum? Nahum, uh, Nahum the Elkishite. He was a prophet for the southern of Judah because the northern kingdom had been taken into captivity Mm -hmm. about 50 years previous. Mm -hmm. And this was about 60 years or so before they went into captivity. Mm -hmm. Uh, The kings he was uh, associated with were Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah. Uh, The Medes and the Persians were coming to power during his time. Uh, which means the Assyrians were descending. And his oracle was primarily to Nineveh, promising the coming vengeance, mm-hmm. the sure vengeance. Yeah, and that's interesting. So the history that Dave just discovered, or maybe you knew that already, is that's how God's going to do it. God's going to bring the prophecy of the destruction of Nineveh through this next empire that, that's coming. So, okay. so uh, Habakkuk. <laughs> yeah, you, you, we won't we won't count you off for spelling, Ron. You're good. That's right. Very good. And then we've got that that section of hope at the end, too, which is so cool. So, okay, so Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Mm-hmm. 
Is that Uzziah? Okay. That's okay. Okay, that's okay. Yeah, good, good job. And you can see it right there on the, uh, on the chart there. So, um, yeah, good deal. And uh, Haggai? Very good. Okay. So you see, in just a few minutes with the right tools and even a lot of that just, you know, reading, reading the book itself where you have some background information given, uh, you can get enough context to, to help you at least get started in it. So I want to encourage you in that. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to be able to navigate through some of these harder books. You just have to have a good approach and maybe some helpful tools that will help you with it. So, Okay. Well, good job. Uh, we got the homework there. For those of you that are keeping up with homework, if you have any homework assignments to turn in, please bring those and uh, let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. We are thankful for both your holiness and your great mercy and that we uh, glean from the prophets how seriously you take your law and how mighty and um, righteous you are in your character and, and yet how merciful and patient and gracious you are to to those of us that are sinful and, and just struggle so much. And, uh, and like Isaiah and other prophets prophesied, we're thankful that you will send the servant, the Messiah, who will um, restore us to you and, and make a way for a relationship that is not based on our works, but is based on uh, faith and trust in your mercy and grace. Uh, so we're thankful for these things. Give us grace as we read the harder portions of Scripture. And uh, might tonight give us helps uh, to be able to do that in, in ways that are that are um, more successful, and that we'd glean from you. In Jesus' name, Amen.